0: Seth stevens davidowitz is an economist and data scientist who specialises in using unusual data to uncover fresh findings. His 2017 book, Everybody Lies, and his 2022 book, Don't Trust Your Gut, were bestsellers. And he's now followed them up with a self-published book, Who Makes the NBA, which he wrote in 30 days using artificial intelligence. I'm keen to chat with Seth today, not only about the findings in his books, but also about the creative process and what we can learn from the way in which artificial intelligence has made Seth more productive. Seth, welcome to the Good Life podcast.
1: Thanks so much, so much for having me, Andrew.
0: Now, you grew up in a, uh, in a pretty literate family. Your dad was a historian, your mum was an editor. Uh, did, you, did you feel you had a sort of love of words from an early age? Did the words come before the data?
1: uh yeah i think so i think uh you know my dad was not just a historian he was a journalism professor so kind of a writing coach and i the and who makes the nba i talk about steph curry the great shooter and how he is mentored by his dad del curry and i feel like uh you know i don't, I don't want to say i'm as good at writing as steph curry is at basketball but i do feel like uh, my dad did feel like the Del Curry of writing. He definitely was coaching me from a very young age and correcting my writing and going over my essays and everything. Uh, and my mom as well has been super useful in uh, in helping me write and everything. So definitely growing up with two writers as parents uh, is is gonna lead you a little bit towards writing, I would say.
0: Because they're are, there are unusual skills to have together, data crunching and, uh, and writing. Uh, what brought you to data? So that
1: was, I was very good at it, uh, kind of math and data. And I was always super fascinated about statistics. Actually, because like a lot of people who love statistics. It all started with sports. Uh, so I was a huge sports fan. And if you're a sports fan, you know, you know, I was a baseball fan, basketball fan, football fan. It's so based around stats and analytics. Uh, and it just drew me to data analysis. One of the first classes I taught in college was the data of sports. And I was just like totally obsessed with it. So I was always a numbers guy and a math guy. And uh, yeah, a, a less of a, The interesting thing is I have a PhD in economics, and I would say I'm much less an economics guy than than any of these other things. You know, I'm not a guy who uh, you know pours over the who, who wants to debate, think about inflation or interest rates necessarily. Uh, that is not, was never a huge passion of mine.
0: Right. I, I don't feel when I'm reading your books that there's a kind of big emphasis on ignoring the sunk cost fallacy, think of the margin, uh, <laughs> all those sort of economic principles. It's more, I think of you more as sort of a, a curious social scientist in that sense. So, so what think, drew you into economics?
1: So what drew me into economics was the book Freakonomics uh, by Stephen Levitt and Stephen Dubner. And it was all about these quirky questions we can ask using data about human behavior. And that was just like right up my alley because I've always been interested in like I read that book and I'm just like, oh, my God, there's someone else out there who thinks exactly like me. And it's always, you know, trying to, these weird questions and wacky questions about human behavior. I think one of the difficulties was when I got to the economics PhD program, I learned that the reason free economics made such an impression is because that is like not normal economics. Right. right. Uh, and, you know, that, you know, you can't really necessarily, you know, Stephen Levitt, who built a career as a oddball economist, as a once in a generational Person and it's a little harder, you know, usually when you actually get the economics program, they're much more interested in interest rates and inflation and all these things that uh, weren't big passions of mine.
0: Absolutely. And of course, Levitt comes to free economics after he's got uh, tenure as a full professor. So uh, <laughs> uh, the early stage is, is more sort of a, a Gary Becker style of, uh, of, of economics. Um, but you, you wrote a, a thesis, which was titled Essays Using Google Data, uh, with the uh, the late great Alberto Alesina as your, uh, your your thesis chair, uh, how was that that process of uh, of diving into a, a PhD, which was largely driven by uncovering new data sources and uh, in in a sense taking economics beyond traditional boundaries?
1: Yeah, that was a great period, except for the fact that I couldn't get an academic job. But I loved writing the the thesis because it was all about my passions and you know, exploring these topics that I found really interesting in these new data sets, like, you know, so basically, I become obsessed with Google search data. And there were all these, uh, I'm like, they're all I'm like, this is the most amazing data set I've ever encountered. And uh, so I used it to study racism and child abuse and predicting turnout and all these topics. And uh, it was really a joy to write the dissertation. I remember I wrote my first uh, job market, my job market paper, uh, you know, kind of the, the paper you use to try to get a job. And I talked to a friend, And he said, I can't even imagine how much work that was. And it kind of stopped me in my tracks because I didn't realize, like, I wasn't thinking that I was working so hard, but then I realized I'd spent the last three months not leaving my apartment and just working from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. But for me, when I'm passionate about something, it's just not work. And I very easily kind of tune out the world around me uh, and just, you know, can hunker down for 12 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, when when I'm passionate about something. And that was definitely an experience writing that dissertation.
0: Well, let's go to some of the specific findings out of the, uh, the Google data. Uh, in Everybody Lies, one of the uh, findings you talk about is the prevalence of uh, racism across the United States. Uh, how do you use Google data to explore racism?
1: Yeah, so, you know, the difficulty with studying racism, of course, is that people lie about racism. That's a good thing, I think. In the United States, it's become socially unacceptable to be racist. It's probably better to live in a world where people feel embarrassed and ashamed of their racism than you know, the previous world we lived in where people would admit that they didn't support interracial marriage or didn't think African-Americans were as smart or you know, all these questions that used to detect racism. And now people say, no, the right answer to this question, these questions and don't admit to, the, to any of these racist thoughts. But kind of the insight was, well, on Google, people are really honest. And that's where people are gonna tell you what they're really thinking, what they're really feeling. And it started, but I was just shocked by how frequently people were making searches that included the word, the N-word, kind of the worst racist word in the United States. And I thought, okay, who's, who's making the searches with the N-word in 2000, uh, I guess, 12 at the time. But it, it was searched millions of times every year, same frequency as searches such as Lakers and Migraine, Economist, Daily Show. It wasn't a fringe search by any stretch of the imagination. And then I was also shocked by the location of the searches. If you had asked me, based on everything I knew about racism in the United States, the history of racism in the United States, uh, you know, how to divide the country, I would have said South versus North. The Civil War was North versus South, Jim Crow law, is South. Like you kind, of, you kind of think of South as the place where that wasn't treating African Americans well, and the north is the place that was, but that wasn't true in all the at all the data. Many of the highest areas were in the north, you know, upstate New York, western Pennsylvania, eastern Ohio, industrial Michigan. Uh, the real divide was East versus West. It just got a lot, lo- racism gets a lot lower as you get west of the Mississippi River. And then the big thing I found early on was racism per- just about perfectly predicted where Barack Obama underperformed when he was running for president. So Barack Obama, first uh, African-American uh, major candidate for presidency of the United States, general election candidate for presidency of the United States, uh, areas where racism was highest, he was just getting a lot fewer votes than you'd expect, a lot fewer than previous Democratic candidates had gotten and a lot fewer votes than the House candidates and the Senate candidates were getting. Uh, so it's just very clear in the data that, you know, if you ask people in surveys, did you care that Obama was black, everybody said no, 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 of course, or if anything, it was a positive, but it's secretly, there were all these people who are doing things like searching n word jokes, and also not voting for Obama when they had p- voted for previously previous white Democratic candidates.
0: So one of the other findings I really enjoyed was uh, looking at sexuality uh, and your discovery that there are parts of the United States which are uh, particularly intolerant of uh, of people who are gay or lesbian, and that in those states, uh, people are also women are also more likely to search for the words "Is my husband gay."
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the, kind of the, another the type of thing you can see in in Google search data. The, the most common question is my husband, you know, all again, all this data is anonymous and aggregate is is my husband gay. And these searches are predominantly located in South Carolina, Tennessee, Mississippi, areas where tolerance to homosexuality is much lower, where I, mean, I think there is evidence that there are classic gay men, uh, I think it's pretty clear, you know, I also look at the evidence that, you know, in these places where tolerance towards homosexuality is low, uh, there are very clearly uh, men who, who are cl- closeted. So it, it, I think some of the women are correct to be suspicious of their husband's sexuality in some of these places where uh, that aren't as forward towards, uh, towards sexuality.
0: You also managed to get your hands on remarkable uh, data sets, uh, ranging from uh, data around uh, uh, dating uh, to data around dreams as well. Uh, how do you get hold of these uh, these datasets, and and how tough is it to be able to uh, to analyze them as a social scientist?
1: Yeah, so I was always very aggressive of asking for data. I don't totally know my like in everybody lies. I have a whole section in porn of Pornhub data analysis, and I just asked Pornhub for the data anonymous and aggregate, and they gave me it to me. And a whole bunch of people have asked me, and they're like, Pornhub hasn't given me the data. What's going on? What do you do? And I'm like, I have no idea. I just asked them. Uh, so the basically the way that i've always done it is just ask and uh, so far it's frequently successful the dreams data set uh, i met a guy who had a, who created a dreams app called shadow and we we met for lunch in new york city where i live and uh, he said he was interested in what i was doing and would give me his data so that that was a, <laughs> one of them uh, sometimes you scrape a data set so i had i realized to talk about stormfront the largest white nationalist site in, in the united states and uh, that data set, I just scraped to to get the data. Uh, so a combination of things, but uh, yeah, aggressiveness is kind of a big thing in, in getting data, I guess.
0: Then uh, five years after uh, writing uh, Everybody Lies, you came out with uh, Don't Trust Your Gut. Uh, which is, as uh, you, you talk about, a, a response to the uh, uh, largely data free self help uh, industry. Uh, what were some of the findings that uh, you found most surprising coming out of Don't Trust Your Gut? Yeah, so that was, kind of, yeah, as you said, the motivation was I'm, I'm kind of
1: like I'm obsessed with data, obviously. I've written a whole book on data. I was, uh, I, you know, I have a PhD on economics, but kind of turned that more data. I worked as a data scientist at Google, I'm obsessed with data. I, I love numbers and I, it, it kind of occurred to me that as much as I love data, I barely use data at all in my big life decisions. So, you know, at the time I was single, uh, I wasn't using data and deciding how to date, you know, what to look for in a life partner. Uh, I wasn't using data too much in how I ran my career, or, you know, how I spent my time. And I'm like, this seems kind of insane. You know, there should be data on all these questions that are help guiding me. So I spent a few years uh, reading studies on, you know, kind of the biggest topics that are out there. And some things were just, yeah, really did surprise me. Like uh, there's this amazing study of the tax records of all the richest Americans. And they found the typical rich American is the owner of a mid-sized regional company, such as a beverage distribution company or auto dealership. And that really shocked me. I didn't think of, you know, when I think of rich people, I wasn't thinking beverage distribution uh, owner. I was thinking things very different. And, uh, you know, sometimes I think, uh, there, there, there are f- fun findings. Also, this one was very depressing, maybe not too surprising for for sports fans. But uh, when someone watches a sporting event, if their team loses, they lose eight points of happiness. If their team wins, they gain four points of happiness. So basically, on average, you're making a terrible happiness decision. When you watch sporting events, you get less pay- pleasure from the wins, than you get pain, the losses. So th- that was really interesting. Uh, a lot of things it's it data sometimes just clarifies things. It's not necessarily so, so shocking, but it just kind of clears everything away. So you know, I did a lot of uh, I talked a lot about research on happiness, and there's a project Mappiness Now where they ask people, they like, ping them on iPhones and they say, uh, you know who are you with? What are you doing, and how happy are you? And they built this enormous data set, you know uh, six million or three million happiness points. and you know they found all the things that make people happy. And there, it's there's, it's not shocking. It's not like you know you think doing your taxes makes you miserable, but actually doing your taxes makes you happy. Like no, doing your taxes <laughs> makes you miserable. And you know standing in an annoying line makes you miserable, and doing the dishes makes you miserable, and you know hanging out with friends makes you happy. And uh, but but I think you no, know, there were some some slight surprises like uh, watching reading and watching a lot of leisure activities. Uh, that we spend social a lot of our time with tonight. social media, in particular, you know, really make us miserable. So there are definitely more sub surprises, but I think for me, the main thing it did is just kind of clarify things, like because we're so lost in our idea of what we need to be happy. You know, you know, you need enough money, you need, uh, you know, whatever, whatever you think you need, some epic experience. Then you know, you kind of see the things that make them make people happy. Uh, I kind of summed up all happiness research as the the data driven answer to life is. Be with your love on an 80 degree and sunny day, overlooking a beautiful body of water, having sex, uh, because that is kind of all the that combines all the happiest things. You know, the, we're happiest. The people are happy. Person we're happiest with is a romantic partner. The weather that makes us happiest, 80 degree and sunny. The location that makes us happy, uh, being near a beautiful body of water. The activity that makes us happy, uh, intimacy, making love. So that kind of combines everything. But it also makes the point that the things that make us happy are kind of very simple, very obvious things. But we kind of forget that in the hubbub of modern life uh, when there's so much noise around us and lights. And, you know, if you, uh, I live in New York City. There's all these things, you know, do this to make become happy, you know, uh, make more money, you know, have more epic experiences, have louder social experiences. And, you know, I don't think that's really uh, the, the things that make people happy are pretty simple.
0: Yeah, I find uh, starting the day by getting out for an hour-long run is uh, is pretty pretty gorgeous, and uh, uh, it is difficult to to replicate that in lots of parts of parts of the world. Uh, I was, was struck too uh, thinking about your work in uh, in Don't Trust Your Gut uh, on the importance of commuting time to contributing to unhappiness uh, and people's ability to make themselves a lot happier if they're able to uh, to to reduce that uh, negative hit of commuting.
1: Yeah, commuting is one of those. I think in 2024, if you still have a long commute, like you really just shouldn't have a long commute. It's so apparent in the data uh, that it's terrible for our happiness, a, a long uh, a long commute. Uh, you know, I, I think it's the inter- one of the interesting things about data that I just got into and don't trust you, God, and I want to get into further is just uh, the, the difficulty with work. You know, work's a very dangerous You know, we spend so much of our time at work. And if you actually look at the data, the moment to moment happiness, Work is the second lowest ranked activity. The only thing that ranks lower is being sick in bed. Uh, the average person, when they're working, is very, very unhappy, uh, and that's very sad. Because again, you know, we need to. You need to feed yourself. You need to feed your family. Uh, how can you, you know, you know? Are we all destined to spend forty in, in New York City? It seems more like sixty hours a week, seventy hours a week, doing something that makes us miserable. I think it's not an easy question. There's not an easy solution. You know, part of it is probably caring less about money because you know a lot of people I think pick jobs that are, are really unfulfilling and boring, and they don't like because it offers a higher salary. And if you're doing something that's boring and unfulfilling, you don't like seventy hours a week. It's kind of who cares your salary at that point? Uh, you know, the, so that so you can buy some nice things in the. 10 hours where you're not doing something you absolutely hate and you're probably going to want to sleep during those hours anyway so i think that that's you know one solution is caring is uh you know caring a little bit less about money and i think also just caring a lot more about the people you work with if you look at the data the real thing that does seem to make a difference in kind of eliminating this misery that so many people feel while they're working is working with friends so if you like the people you work with to the point you consider them a friend then you know work it's still not necessarily going to be the happiest activity it's not going to be as happy as taking a beautiful walk or run or you know having drinks with your friends uh but it can uh you know be uh you know neutral activity an okay activity uh and and i think that's that that may be about the most we can hope for in work that it's you know it's 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 on balance it's going to be pretty okay and i think the way to get there really it's important to work with friends, work with people you like, work with people you love. Uh if you're, you know, you have a boss you hate, if you're co- if you hate your colleagues, uh you're going to have a really hard time uh enjoying your time at work.
0: Yeah, it is a reminder of uh, how fortunate those of us who look forward to going to work are and uh, in some sense how atypical that experience is. Uh, yeah. So I want to come yeah. with- want to come to your uh, your new book who makes the nba uh and ask you first about some of the uh, the fascinating findings in the book but then also about uh how you created it um uh, so let's start with the findings um uh, kids with the who don't have the right genes you say have basically zero chance of making the nba uh, yeah five foot nine seth tell me about that
1: <laughs> yeah uh So the way this one of the, I I got, I was looking into how genetic basketball talent is. And one of the ways we see how genetic something is, is by studying twins. And if something's really genetic, you see identical twins end up very similar because identical twins, unlike fraternal twins, unlike normal siblings, uh, other siblings uh, share a hundred percent of their genes rather than 50% of their genes. So kind of the, the dominance of identical twins means that something's very genetic, Uh, NBA is dominated by identical twins in a way no other sport really is, you know, way more than baseball, football. Uh, I didn't look at what are the Australian rugby, I guess, is the uh, big Australian sport, but more than swimming. I I think you basically said that diving has no
0: identical twins. Diving has
1: no identical twins. That's right. Uh, So you do the math and it basically is clear that uh, the, that basketball talent is something like 80% genetic. Now, one of the reasons for this is because it relies so heavily on height. So basketball, each inch doubles your chances of making the NBA uh, throughout the height distribution. So if you're six feet tall, you have twice the chance of making the NBA than if you're five eleven. If you're six one, twice the chance that if you're six feet. All the way up to if you're seven feet tall, you have twice the chance of making the NBA than if you're six foot eleven. And uh, and what that means is that if you're five ten, below five ten, which is an average height for an American, uh, you have a one in three point eight million chance of making the NBA if you're a uh, 7 footer above you have a 1 in 7 chance of making the nba which is just shockingly which is, which large which is amazing right amazing the incredible idea is
0: that once you hit that height you have a 1 in 7 chance of entering this elite uh, sport
1: yeah it's hard to think of any other kind of qual- attribute that gives you such an hi- a high chance of uh reaching something so glamorous uh i don't yeah i don't know what yeah, I, I try to think what it even is, and I, I don't, nothing jumps to mind as like you know just that one attribute gives you such a chance, such a great chance of of being at the top of a field that so many people aspire to. Uh
0: so uh, so then you talk about uh, some of the uh, features about those tall players, uh, and you you crunch the statistics on the uh, the seven footers on the NBA. Uh, tell me how seven footers tend to play. Uh, so I, I go, I hammer the seven footers a little bit. And in, in
1: full disclosure, it, at some subconscious level, it may be, you know, insecurity, animosity about being 5'9 <laughs> and never reaching my dream of reaching the NBA. Uh,
0: hey, but they've uh, been on us for so long.
1: Yeah, they, yeah fair enough. Uh, so, you know, I don't know if it's a Napoleon complex or something that I, I had a few <laughs> pages of my NBA attacks at first, but it is interesting that if you look at the data, Kind of the taller NBA players are just worse at every skill, so they're slower than shorter NBA players. They jump less high than shorter NBA players. They shoot free throws worse than NBA than tall, shorter NBA players. My the, one of the things I found interesting: they're worse in the clutch than NBA players than shorter NBA wh- taller NBA players are worse in the clutch than shorter NBA players. So taller NBA players are more likely to choke, be bad at handling pressure. So why is this? Well, because height is such an advantage in the NBA. If you have it in spades, you have you don't have to be as good at the other things to reach the NBA. So if, you, if you're a seven foot tall you know, person and you have a one in seven chance of making the NBA, uh, you don't need you only you don't need extraordinary skills. You just need to be one in, be the top one in seven in kind of everything else in basketball. But if you're five foot ten and you have a one in you know, a million chance of reaching the NBA, then to. Reach the NBA, you have to have one in a million skills, one in a million of everything else. You know, shooting and speed and vertical leap and uh, uh, mental toughness. So uh, shorter players uh, have just come have just dealt with so you know have the odds so stacked against them that they have to be so much more elite uh, to reach the top of basketball.
0: And they're not those seven footers aren't just worse. Uh, you argue that on some dimensions, such as uh, free throw shooting percentages. Um, they're actually way down what you'd expect. Yeah, I mean, they're kind of like
1: there. They're, there's a sense in which they're not. They're, they're like shockingly average athletes on many dimensions. So their free throw shooting, the average free throw shooting of a seven footer, which I think about sixty one percent, you know, would be about below average on a high school basketball team. And their, <laughs> uh, you know, their their speed would be. They wouldn't make, you know, a high school sprinting, uh, sprinting team, and their ability to leap would just be a little bit above average with, uh, you know, someone with intense training could get to about their vertical leap with, you know, eventually. So we're not looking here necessarily at amazing, extraordinary athletes. Of course, they do practice hard and they get better than they would otherwise be uh, and, you know, are in in good shape and can run around a lot. But the raw material there uh, is kind of a lot less than... (laughs) Uh, you might expect because height is such an advantage.
0: You then talk about the uh, the value of coaches uh, by looking at uh, teams before and after a coach comes comes on board. Uh, do coaches matter?
1: I think coaches in the NBA matter a ton. Uh, that I I did some research on this. Some other scholars, University of Chicago, have done some research on this. That coaches in basketball are just really really important. And I think the reason for this is because basketball and this is a something an economist would love because economists love incentives Uh, basketball has an incentives problem which is that a player gets paid more and gets more fans by scoring a lot of points but that's not necessarily good for the team because you can score points by taking crazy shots that that don't have a high chance of going in so good, be good for the team, you have to pass up those crazy shots to find a teammate who has a better shot. And if you look at the best coaches, I think one of the things they really excel at is they get their players to pass the ball more. So the best coaches historically, if you look at the data, when a player joins their team, you just see when they're driving the basket, they're more likely to pass the ball than they previously were before joining that team. So I think what coaches, what the best coaches in the NBA do, uh, a lot of what they do is getting the players particularly a star players to pass the ball more even though it's not necessarily in their interest even though they may be sacrificing uh salary and fans
0: presumably we should see the same sort of dynamic going on with any leader of an organization where individual performance is really transparent um so if you're running a factory where the manager's the only people who can see what's going on you might not expect so much of an incentive problem uh, but if you're uh, coaching a sporting team or running a political party uh, where people can see outsiders can see how every member of the uh, team is performing then presumably uh inculcating teamwork really matters
1: yeah exactly i would i i definitely some of the people who' read the book uh that's what they've you know business people have honed in on that you know that uh we need to get you know our players to pass the ball as well uh the interesting thing is it's very hard to know what leads to it there the one of the coaches who's best at getting players to pass the ball and also one of the best coaches historically Greg Popovich they have a whole chapter there's a whole chapter in another book where they talk about what Popovich does and why he's such a good coach and it seems a big part of his secret is hugs he's like oh he's hugging the players hugging the, <laughs> you know getting them to kind of feel like family I guess uh you know it's it's kind of it is a little amusing when you think of you know sports uh the arena for you know the most masculine gladiators and, uh, you know, uh, on the planet that maybe at the end of the day, all everybody needs is a hug.
0: (laughs) Might well be the last workplace in which uh, managers can uh, uh, see an effective strategy as being encouraging their staff to hug one another.
1: (laughs) Yeah, might be. (laughs) Uh,
0: You also talk about uh, inefficiencies in the draft. Uh, Tell us about some of the things in the uh, uh, draft, which, which aren't fully taken account of.
1: Yeah. So there are many things that, you know, there are many qualities of players that, you know, if you draft a player with that quality, they'll be more likely to overperform their draft spot or under, or, you know, less likely to underperform their draft spot. One of them is hand size. So in basketball, it's well known that hand size is important. Your ability, if you have big hands, you can palm the ball very, very easily. And a lot of the uh, best players in history have had enormous hands, whether it's uh, Michael Jordan uh, uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Will Chamberlain, Shaquille O'Neal, uh, Kawhi Leonard, uh, Giannis, Antetokounmpo, uh, big, big hands. In fact, uh, Kobe, uh, Phil Jackson was once asked if you could only pick one player in your team, uh, he coached both these superstars, Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant, which would you pick? He said Michael Jordan because Jordan has big hands, whereas Kobe just has average hands. So hands are very, very important basketball. But it seems like as important as they are, it just isn't hasn't been incorporated historically enough by teams that if, you know, a player is really, really fast and has an amazing vertical leap and scores a lot of points in college, but his hands are only, you know, eight inches, teams will kind of say, well, we'll take a chance on him. But then in the NBA, it does seem like small hands are just a killer. Uh, and it does become very hard to be a good NBA player with small hands. And uh, 17 of the 19 players with the smallest hands in the, M- in the NBA history have underperformed their draft spot they've done worse than you would predict based on where they drafted so again it seems like teams knew hand size mattered but they didn't know just how
0: much hand size mattered another one you mentioned is uh standing jump uh how high you can jump without a run-up. uh why does that get undervalued
1: yeah i think there there are two jumps there's a vertical leap where you get a running head start and a standing leap where you don't and What you see in the data is players that are good at the standing leap, but less good at the vertical leap are undervalued. They overperform their draft pick. And I think the reason for that is if you think of the game of basketball, frequently you don't get a running head start. You know, your players, right? You know, you don't get a big leap, you know, big chance uh, to run and and get your leap. You just kind of get half a step, no step, one step. But I think the vertical leap is just so exciting to people, the real running head start, the people who can dunk from the free throw line with a running head start it's so alluring to people uh that we kind of it's hard for nba players not to give you know it's such an incredible athletic feat to get to to such a high level with a running head start that i think those players tend to be overvalued rather than somebody who can get high without a running head start uh, which a lot of the game of basketball uh a lot of the game of basketball you don't get a running head start
0: so let's go to the uh, creative process. Um, I, I should say at the outset, I, I like this book. I didn't like it quite as much as the uh, as the previous ones, um, but for uh, my how much I liked it for every hour you put into writing it, uh, it is clearly my very favourite one of your books. So tell me about how you used uh, tools like code interpreter, now data analysis, uh, and other forms of generative AI in producing. Uh, who makes the NBA?
1: Yeah, so the motivation of this was uh, OpenAI released a tool, Code Interpreter. And uh, it allows, it's kind of allows to do rapid data analysis. So instead of doing coding, which a huge part of my creative process requires, you can just talk to Code Interpreter and it'll do the coding for you, run all the code, create all the charts, create all the data sets, create all the analyses. And it's just such a game changer for a data analyst uh, that things that used to take me four months were taking me are now taking me four hours. So the entire book was created in in roughly 30 days. uh, And, you know, a a full time work I was working, you know, like with my dissertation, it was, you know, 12 hour days or whatever, but it was also just so much fun. Uh, A lot of data analysis I find is very painful and not fun for me, Uh, you know, looking up code and, remembering code and correcting code, debugging code. Uh, It's all kind of monotonous, but I didn't have to do any of this for that. I could just focus on the ideas and kind of Code Interpreter could do all the work for me. So it was a really, really fun process. There's also a ton of art that was made with AI uh, mid-journey and Dolly. So it was, yeah, it was AI assisted process, which I think is gonna really transform a creative process. You might be right that I didn't quite reach the level that I did with my previous books in my 30 day uh, sprint, but I think uh, you know, it's kind of an experiment. I think the level I reached was higher than most people would expect you could reach in 30 days. And it does show okay, maybe not 30 days is the right time frame, but I think this old fashioned way where, you know, a book takes three years like my previous books did uh, may no longer be true in the age of AI.
0: Uh, And you've got a a lovely appendix, which talks about in in quite a lot of detail about how you use the artificial intelligence tools in in building the book. Uh, And one of the things you delve into is the extent to which somebody who is uh, a top flight writer like yourself um, can use uh, the generative AI to actually produce text. Uh, Where do you find it it strikes its limits?
1: Producing text right now, you know, it may be in the future that uh ai just you know you could just have chat write for you uh i i find chat kind of a boring high school essay writer and you know i'd like to think you know if i'm a you know professional writer that i can give people a lot more i can give people you know great writing creative writing i tried to have chat gpt write a couple of sections and my dad who I, as i mentioned is a journalism professor now ember is journalism professor He read one section. I didn't even tell him it was AI. And he's just like, this is horrible and cliched. What the hell has happened to your writing, Seth? Uh, So he noticed every time. Now, I did use it, interestingly, to write the appendix uh, because the appendix, I'm kind of like, well, the only people are going to read this are uh, real obsessives and data geeks. And, you know, I don't need to, the writing doesn't have to be beautiful here. I just kind of got to get the facts across. So I did use it for writing the appendix, but writing the actual prose that I wanted people to, you know, if, if you, If you write a book, you know, I always feel you have a responsibility. If you're asking someone to pay $9.99, $14.99 for your creation, uh, I feel a very strong uh, responsibility to deliver for that and make it worth their price, to give them the right information, to give them the right uh, entertainment value. Uh, So I don't don't take it, uh, you know, I don't take that responsibility trivially. So uh, to just, you know, have ChatGPT Write, you know, what I consider to be high school essays for people. I wouldn't feel comfortable asking someone to purchase my book uh, with that kind of writing. So, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't really use ChatGPT for the actual writing at all, except for the appendix.
0: You talked about its uh, value in terms of structuring things, and uh, for my own part, I found it uh, useful in in editing. You know, just put in a slab of text and. Uh, uh... Ask for uh, for suggested changes, uh, and uh, sometimes it will try and turn a, a nice phrase into something which is more conventional or pedestrian. But at other times, it will spot a, a grammatical inconsistency, inconsist- a singular or a plural, or things like that. Um, where did you find it useful in in assisting you in the writing process?
1: Yeah, pretty much everything I wrote, I then put in ChatGPT and said, "Just you know, what should I think?" Here. First of all, like, I, I asked it to copy edit everything. So all gr- check all grammar. Right. It's really good at that. Uh and then just general thoughts, like, you know, uh, yeah, you, know, you know, what do you think of the, of this piece? I do that with every email I send now as well. Uh I just, you know, one of the dangers as a as a writer is you just make uh <laughs> You, you have to be careful, you know, it, one of the reasons feedback is so useful is because it's so easy as a writer to screw up somehow, you know, I had a section in my book, where, uh, where I was talking about, you know, how uh, socioeconomic status uh, of of players, and my mom actually read a draft of it and she's like, it sounds a little like racially insensitive, you know, the, the way I would written it. And, you know, she knows, just like, Seth, I know you're like the last thing from a racially insensitive person, but like, you know, I was so lost in the data that, you know, just things I was saying, like blacks from the ghetto or something. Like I wasn't thinking twice, but she's just like Seth, like that, that sounds a little, like, it just makes me a little uncomfortable. And I made a big edit that I think I'm pretty confident it d- didn't read like that in the final version. Uh, now, ChatGPT, you know, I said ChatGPT is, is, is good at things like that to be like, you know, this might be kind of a sensitivity reading or a, you know, just like, just anything you might miss about how you're coming across, uh, you know, th- this reads more obvious than you think, you know, th- just like anything, uh, kind of just a general sense of, of how you're coming across the, the equivalent of another set of eyes on your work, which is just so important for a writer. Cause it's so easy to make a mistake, uh, in the, in how you're coming across to write something that, you know, sounds racist, even though you're not racist, that's, uh, sounds creepy even though you're not you know a creepy person there's just like all these pitfalls uh in, in, as a writer particularly a writer like me who tends to uh go on uh, talk about edgy topics uh you know i'm not afraid to talk about you know topics that can make people comfortable and can can lead to insensitivity so all these areas i think it's very useful to have another set of artificial intelligence eyes
0: And in the area of uh, uh, success and coming from a privileged background, um, some of the ideas you you drew in from uh, Everybody Lies, did you also find artificial intelligence was useful in terms of uh, researching topics, in terms of drawing together um, past writings? Because there is this sort of the problem of hallucination and the tendency of of, uh, uh, generative AI sometimes to to not precisely represent uh the uh the, the prior literature
1: yeah i didn't use it too much to summarize private uh prior literature it's possible i could have used it more than i did uh you know you, you never know it's kind of a, the book was kind of an experiment too so there are all these areas where you know I i thought i could use ai for something and then it it didn't really materialize uh, and then there were some areas where i thought it was a long shot and then it ended up working. You know, one of the use cases, I didn't actually use this in the book, but I think I talk about the appendix, is I need, I want a measure of childhood background of every NBA player or a large sample of NBA players. And there isn't an objective measure of, you know, who had the more difficult, most difficult childhoods. So I thought, wow, you know, this might be a good use of chat It has in its data set, all this information about different players and, you know, all their family background, just like, let me ask chat rank one to 10, Kind of the difficulty of a player's background. And it gave me very, very sensible, you know rankings. you know uh, Jimmy Butler, whose mother kicked him out of the house when he was a kid and whose father abandoned the family. He got ranked as a ten, whereas uh, you know Dwight Howard, who grew up with a state trooper father in middle class in Atlanta, was more a three. And Steve Nash, who grew up with upper middle class parents who drove him to all his sporting practices, was a two in childhood difficulty. So it was like this very sensible rating that would have been otherwise difficult to attain for so many players uh, and it was done instantaneously and sensibly by chat and th- th- that was a very interesting use case
0: what made you decide not to use that in the end did you not trust that uh, that that it's the the results would be uh, that people would believe the results uh
1: yeah i think there was a little bit of like are people going to believe this is going to seem like this is amateurish uh, I don't know. I put it in a pen. I I'd probably be honest. There's a part of me that so I self-published this book, and there's a part of me that's like maybe now I should, you know, I, I proved that I could do this in 30 days, and it's really cool. But maybe now I should like talk to a real publisher and flesh it out a little more. And uh, you know, maybe it won't be 30 days. Maybe it'll be 100 days or whatever. But uh, you know, some i of doing that. If I did that, I would flesh. I'd, I'd probably put that, that that back in and kind of double and triple check it and think of other you know sensitivity checks. Uh, So it may come back there. Uh, You know, I I might try to bulk up the book. And uh, yeah, Uh, another thing that I found interesting in promoting the book, you know, so much of the early promotion, I'm like, look what can be done in 30 days uh, using AI tools. And I thought everyone would be like, that's kind of a cool gimmick. People would be like, oh, you know, what can you do in 30 days? And I think there was some sense of like, well, I don't want to read like your experiment with yourself like I just care how good it is so like the fact that you did it in 30 days well then it's probably going to suck uh so there's kind of an interesting thing like in my head I'm like this is kind of cool and different and well exciting to people and I think some people saw it and you know saw that and were like well I don't want to read your lazy effort like you know kind of as I was saying if you're going to ask someone to pay $9.99 $14.99 for a book like make it worth their while and I think it is worth people's while but I think the 30-day thing uh, may may have been a net negative rather than a net positive and people purchasing the book, which, uh, you know, kind of surprised me.
0: Right. It did seem to be a contrast from uh, one of the things you talked about in, in selling Don't Trust Your gut, which is that you had uh, distilled a thousand academics, so over a thousand academic studies. Uh, and in some sense to say, I wrote this really quickly is the, the converse of saying I distilled a vast amount of material so you don't have to. Yeah, I mean, I think,
1: I think again. I think AI is such a game changer. You know, prior to AI, to say I wrote a book in thirty days would a hundred percent be a vanity project and like you know a lazy project. But I really think because of AI, it is possible to do something in thirty days that is a real treatise on basketball. And you know, I'm not saying that there aren't parts where the of the book where the writing is a little clank, you know clunkier than it could be and. Uh, you know, th- 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 it's not a perfect book, but that's also true of all my books. You know, everybody lies. I can't really open without wanting to vomit, just because there are a few sentences in there. I'm like, God, who was that Seth who wrote that sentence? And <laughs> was he drunk or like, yeah, I don't know. What 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 was he thinking that that wasn't a, a you know a sentence that belonged in the book? So you know, it's it's true in any book that you know the it's hard to get every sentence perfect. I, I do think that uh the 30 days thing does give people a skepticism that i think isn't fully warranted uh i think it just it just colors how they how everybody reads everything everyone's just a little more you know yeah when you say and don't trust you've got to read a thousand studies over three years which i legitimately did uh everyone has a great trust to what you've done if you say and everybody lies as i did i spent five years researching this and started writing them as a PhD student, where the top faculty in the world was going over my ideas, and then I wrote them as New York Times columns, where millions of people are reading them and critiquing them, and now here's what I found. People are like, okay, you know, I believe you. Uh, if you say, I, you know, here's a book I wrote, 30 Days with AI." You know, everyone's just reading it a little more critically, I think, and that's a da- dangerous for a writer, even if it's not warranted. Uh, you don't want people uh, skeptical of, of what of, of you. It, it it becomes harder to, yeah, to to win them over, I think.
0: So you said on uh, Twitter slash X that your plan for the year was to follow up Who Makes the NBA uh, with another uh, couple of books, uh, looking at different sports. Are you still planning to uh, to follow that uh, that, that, that approach that, this year? That
1: that may have been a slightly manic moment. I just got really excited. At all these books I was going to write. Uh, you know, I was going to write a baseball book, and then I was going to write an Olympics book, and then I was going to write an NFL book, and. I I still might do it. I'm not totally sure. Uh, I've just had a weird, this may be TMI, but anybody knows my writing. I'm very honest about my personal life. I had a little bit of a personal life setback, uh, a difficult breakup. So I'm thinking of maybe traveling a little bit. No, yeah. I'm thinking maybe taking some time off and traveling rather than jumping into and grieving and processing more than working. So I don't don't know uh, if I'm going to fully execute this plan.
0: But in principle, if you're uh, if you had the time, you feel as though it would have been possible to do an NFL and I think you're talking about the NFL book before the Olympic book, I think, and having the Olympics book come out in time for Paris.
1: I think it's totally doable. I think it is legitimately uh, I I think the rules of creative process have completely changed due to AI. I don't think people realize that. And I think that's what I was proving with who makes the NBA. And I totally believe that if I was willing to just hunker down and work uh really hard for the next uh 12 months i could produce three really really good books on very on different topics uh i'm I'm very confident of that so now now that i'm saying it i'm like maybe i should do that because that does seem really cool uh but uh yeah
0: but which whether you do it or not i mean the fact is that this would have just been an impossible boast a decade Uh, ago
1: yeah hundred percent it's like it's It's just changed the rules completely on uh, what is doable. I mean, uh, yeah, you know, what happens when a study that used to take you four months takes you four hours? Well, you're just living in a totally different universe than we used to live in. Uh, And still, you know, I do consulting for some clients. And even there, just everything is so much faster. Uh, It is a totally new universe we're living in.
0: So a few final questions I ask all of my guests. So what advice would you give to your teenage self?
1: <laughs> uh, don't try to be an NBA player
0: <laughs>
1: at five foot <laughs> nine. No, I think I'd do it by my teenage years, probably. Uh, the, the thing is, I'd give my teenage self the same advice I'd give my current self, but I still can't follow it, which is stop worrying so much and enjoy the ride. Uh, but, you know, I'm still, I think, at 41. Uh, having like I think my 70 year old self is going to tell my what what, if you ask my 70 year old self what would you tell your 41 year old (laughs) self if he stopped worrying so much and enjoy the ride so it's 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 pretty hard to follow that advice but that I think is the main advice that I look back on some of the things that you know seems such a big deal when you're a teenager and now they're just like why was I so freaked out about that
0: what's something you used to believe but no longer do
1: uh used to believe but no longer do that's a good one uh i think that big success is going to lead to happiness uh i think when i i was so driven to be successful and you know i want to go to all the best schools and you know write a yeah write a best-selling book and be a professor at MIT, which I didn't materialize or whatever. And, you know, I did have a a flavor of some success. My first book, you know, was a bestseller and I was flown around the world. And, you know, it's it's kind of fun. Like my first book and my second book, you know, they did did really well. And I get emails from these strangers like great book, great book, great book. And who makes the MBA? I self-published. So the only emails are from my buddies who like have read my book and like are showing me they read it. And in some ways, it, it's more satisfying than like an anonymous stranger saying, you know, hey, I read your book, you know, I I would get 10 emails a day, you know, I read your book, great job. And now I get, you know, one email a week, but it's like from a good friend of mine being like, hey, Seth, love the book or whatever. And I, you know, it, I think those close relationships with friends uh, are really what leads to happiness rather than, you know, achievement, which was such a, a drive in my 20s and 30s, just maniacally focused on achievement and success and i don't think you know i think what what really does make us happy as i get older is i realize is your close relationships
0: what's the most important thing you do in your life to stay mentally and physically healthy
1: uh i think that first i should say this is a weak area of mine uh particularly the mentally healthy part physically helpful healthy i exercise four or five days a week i eat healthy i've always been pretty healthy on that dimension uh, mentally healthy i think i have a lot of room for improvement uh in that i don't do some of the things even when, when things work i kind of just drop them you know so i do a did a gratitude journal for a while and i think it was actually helping and then i just dropped the ball on it uh, and and uh you know i think the main thing i try to do which i don't know i always succeeded is try to you know stay connected to your friends and family and when I get disconnected I do try to you know reconnect and force myself to reconnect and uh you know talk to your friends you know when you go through a difficult period you know again I said I have a had a personal setback uh basically a week ago and you really need to lean on your friends in these situations and let them support you through it and uh, and I, and I've done that. And that's another area where I think when I'm not in my earlier days, I didn't want to, you know, I'm like, I don't want to burden other people with my problems. Uh, and now I realize, you know, I'm there to help my friends through their problems and they're he- you know, there to help me through my problems. That's really the best way to go through life.
0: Yeah. I remember someone saying to us when we first had children, um, if anyone offers you help, there is only one answer and that is yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, dro- dropping that pretense that you can do it all yourself and saying yeah. yes to uh, to offers of help is uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, some of the wisest bit of advice I've received. Yeah. Uh, and finally, not... Seth, which person or which experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life?
1: Which person or experience has most shaped your view of leading an ethical life? I'd say it's probably my, two people. It's my parents, particularly my mom. Uh, I think the thing I love about my mom is she's just very non-judgmental, and that's a way I tend to go through life. I think that's just a big part of being a good person. Is you know, it comes naturally. to My mom and uh, just you know, you know, you know, you don't you've never walked a mile in their shoes, and she's always she she never has the tendency to hammer into someone when they've done something wrong. She's always trying to empathetic and think through why they did that and where their background came from and you know almost empathetic to a fault you know sometimes like there's a, a few years ago like a girlfriend cheated on me and my mom's like well maybe she couldn't ha- c- control herself because of these, these these reasons like mom can't you just say this is an asshole <laughs> like 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 uh, <laughs> uh you don't have to be empathetic towards everybody i was thinking but uh i think on balance is a great quality to uh to always be kind of yeah trying to trying to see uh, see things from other people's perspective and realizing that the reason people behave in certain ways, even behaviors that frustrate you and drive you nuts and uh, you know are do are, are for reasons and reasons you know that you should always try to kind of not just you know ha- you know try, try to not just judge someone so quickly uh, without knowing the reasons that they're behaving the way they are.
0: Seth stevens Davidovitz is the author of Who Makes the NBA? Available at all good electronic download, download mm-hmm. outlets. No, uh, I think just yeah. Amazon. Uh, just Amazon, all right. Available on, <laughs> on Amazon and highly recommended. Seth, thanks so much for taking the time to join me on the Good Life podcast today. Th-
1: thanks so much, Andrew. Uh,
0: thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. Andrew Lee in conversation. We appreciate getting feedback on the podcast, so please leave us a rating or tell a friend about the show. We'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.